Blog Talk Radio. Talk Radio, too many men, too many people making too many problems. Chuck Morse here at at Blog Talk Radio, our first portion of the program. Chuck Morse speaks Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You're welcome to join the conversation. You could call us at 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. Let me welcome aboard Dr. Samuel L. Blumenfeld, the author of NEA, Trojan Horse in American Education, The Whole Language OBE Fraud, and other excellent books. Sam, how are you? Fine, fine. As a matter of fact, I'm very happy this week. As you know, our uh, candidate, uh, Governor Romney, did an excellent job on Wednesday. Oh, yes, I know. What a relief. Uh, and made that uh, Obama look sick. I mean, as a matter of fact, Al Gore thought that he was sick because of the uh, uh, the elevation that he had gotten right. into Denver. Isn't that ridiculous? Well, actually, you know, th- that's no excuse, but there is something to that in that, you know, I sometimes watch for these particulars, Sam, around these debates, how people prepare, and I yeah. thought it was very strange that Mitt Romney very sensibly he checked into his hotel a couple of days before the debate. He didn't go out much. He stayed put. He rested. He worked. He studied. He, you know, he just got ready. Whereas Obama was out running around in another state. I mean, he was campaigning and waving to people. And he did fly in to Denver that morning, which seems odd to me. You would think that they would have thought this through a little bit better. But, um, you know, didn't they learn the lesson from the Nixon-Kennedy debate? Well, apparently not. And, of course, I think that uh, Obama was so confident that he would be able to, uh, you know, just uh, uh, run rings around, uh, uh, you know, Governor Romney that uh, he really did not do much preparing because, you know, he's very self – he's very arrogant, he's very self-centered, he's very narcissistic. And he believes that when he opens his mouth, people just fall all over the place. Yes, I know uh, I know that, Sam. You know, I think that one of the dynamics here was that um, Barack Obama, if you think about it, probably in his entire political career, maybe even in his entire life, he has never really been challenged in, in a conflict. He has always been surrounded by syncopants, people who kiss his foot and tell him how wonderful he is and you know, praise him. 
I, you know, that that's my sense. And that also, in, in the public sense, certainly throughout his presidency and, and throughout his run for, for the presidency and run for Congress, he was surrounded by an adoring media that just uh, emphasized all of these, uh, all this wonderful stuff about him and, and totally blocked out anything negative. And, and, and uh, I think that Obama is one of these people who began to believe his own press. He began to read this stuff every day in the front of the New York Times and he actually started to believe it was true. Well, yes, you know, if the New York Times, which is, you know, the number one uh, printed media in the world, if the New York Times tells him that he's great and wonderful and can make no mistakes practically, yeah. I mean, you know, he's going he's gonna to believe it. He's saying these are intelligent people. These are wealthy, intelligent people. They must know what they're talking about. It's very and, intoxicating. Uh, right, and so he was he bought into this deception that he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And <laughs> you know, Sam, I, I really think that you that that's exactly what it's about. You know, you, you might remember Michael Dukakis. Oh yes. Well Michael Dukakis, when he was governor, the Boston Globe was fawning on him every day. Brilliant. Brilliant Michael Dukakis goes to the bathroom. Brilliant Michael Dukakis walks to the subway. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. All you heard. And I think what happened with Dukakis is that he also started to believe this. He, he's reading about himself every day in the paper of note and seeing these great pictures. And he, it went to his head, and he said, you know, I am brilliant. I should be the president of the United States. And he really wasn't up to it. And once he got into it and he started to run and win, the Boston Globe realized that they had created a Frankenstein monster. I mean, they, they didn't intend, you know, for him to go that far, but it was too late. He had become like uh, he felt that he was invincible, and, and, of course, he flopped. And I think that some of the same dynamic is at play here. Barack Obama just has never been challenged before. John McCain really didn't challenge him. You know, That's he true. was, you know, he just was one of, he just kind of, and all of a sudden he gets up there and you have Mitt Romney, who is a normal person and who is a person who has been challenged all his life, both in business and in politics. He's had nothing but brickbats thrown at him. You've never seen Mitt Romney with a nice picture. I don't think that the, the Time magazine has even run a picture of Mitt Romney. I mean, I think they ran one and they only showed like half of his face. The other half they showed like Satan or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's, you know, whereas with, 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 with Obama, I mean, at this point in the campaign last in 08, he had already had something like 50 magazine covers, all very flattering pictures. So Mitt oh, Romney yeah. knows, you know, he knows what it is to deal with adversity. He knew what it was when he was at Bain Capital. He knew what it was when he was governor of Massachusetts with a 90% with a of the state liberal Democrat attacking him every day. And he was up there ready, and, you know, he's up there bruised and ready for battle. I mean, he didn't, uh, he knew what he was doing. Well, that's it. You see, uh, uh, um, Romney has had the experience of being pummeled by the press, right. while Obama has never been challenged by the by the media, by the liberal media. They never they never ask him challenging questions, so he never even gets a chance to think about how to answer them. While while Romney has had to think about answering all of these criticisms of him. 
I mean, you know, I'm I'm sort of amused by some of the liberal pundits who were oh, so yeah. terribly disappointed. I mean, they were practically in tears. They were. In you fact, know, I, 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 I love to watch watch some of the liberals. I don't know if you watch MSNBC at all. Well, I wa- yeah, I do watch some of it. I mean, you probably saw the guy with the tingling leg. Oh, yes. Leg. And, you know, he was in an absolute meltdown. He was, how could Obama do this? And then he, what he suggested, it was really quite humorous in a way. He said, he really should be watching my show. That's what will help him. <laughs> and then the Rachel Maddow, she was talking like Ralph Cramden and the Honeymooners. Habada, 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 habada. She didn't know what to say. <laughs> I know. They, they, and, and, and one of the commentators on, uh, who was being interviewed uh, said that uh, the liberal press is absolutely angry. They are absolutely flummoxed by uh, uh, by Obama's performance, you know, and, well, you and know, they're probably going to let him have it. Well, Sam, I think that the liberal press at, felt that at this point in the campaign, with only three or four more weeks to go, they would have already killed Romney. I mean, they they had already had their phony, um, you know, polling data out there, which is all lies, by the way showing that it's over and it's inevitable, forget about it, you know, and, and they just felt that this would be the final, you know, these were just a formality, these debates. Right. And Romney's still alive. In fact, I don't know if you saw, do you get the Rasmussen poll? No, no, I don't. Well, I would but, suggest but, uh, but that's that. Us- that's usually a pretty reliable poll, the Rasmussen Oh, yeah, and, and I would suggest that you subscribe to it online. It's free. Uh, okay. You get they sent they send a daily email with they do a daily tracking poll of the nation and of the battleground states, and Rasmussen today has Ohio tied. Oh, got, very good. Yeah, I mean they've got Obama at forty nine, Romney at forty eight, which is yeah. a virtual dead heat, and it, it's contrary to what we've been hearing for the past two weeks, which is that um, Obama's ahead by eight in Ohio. Yeah, yeah, that was so, ridiculous. Yeah. But incidentally, have you noticed that the only thing that they're uh, criticizing uh, Romney about is Big Bird? <laughs> well, that's all they can get. And, uh, I mean, it's so ridiculous. I mean, and and even PBS is is sort of upset that he that he had mentioned Big Bird. But right. but Romney made the point. He said anything that we have to borrow. Of money from China for, should exactly. Not, we should not have it, you know. And, it, it was a and great line. Big Bird can be easily funded by p- private uh, sources. They don't need the federal government. You know. No, absolutely not. Sam, I'm going to take a brief break. You're listening to Chuck Moore speaks. Dr. Samuel Blumenfeld's my guest. Uh, you're welcome to join the conversation. Three four seven three two seven nine eight four nine, or you can email us at Chuck Moore. Seven three two seven nine eight four nine is the number. 
Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I am pleased to mention as a program note that the program is uh, is doing double, more than double, what it did when I was on my previous incarnation uh, before the launching of this program, and that I had a guest on last week that uh, resulted in over 500 downloads of the really? podcast of the show. Yeah, so people are starting to – the thing is starting to move. I mean, people are downloading, and uh, – you know, this program, Sam, at least in the second hour, is both Internet and also regular radio stations, which run the show, you know, at night. I mean, they don't run it live. Uh-huh. But, but I think that Internet is really something that is, uh, is a great, is a great uh, future format for talk radio because when you do the show and you own your program on the Internet and build your audience – you don't have any management looking over your shoulder. I mean, you don't have – I can't tell you how many radio stations where I was removed because they didn't like something I'd said on yes, the airwaves. Yes. So I don't have oh, to worry about that. that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that. I remember that. Right. Well, that and was so a difficult I, period. Oh, and I, I, I'm not going to tell you how many stations I, I went through. But um, I, I've maintained my, my radio show come hell or high water. I mean, I'm determined to do this. And I feel that uh, I really feel much more unleashed now that I have my own uh, format and that the show is building as I promote it. And there's all kinds of great ways to uh, to do that. So I only mention that because our listeners may want to consider doing some some radio uh, on the air. And I actually help people get on the air. I help people create blogs for themselves. I interview them and they get to keep the blog. I mean, it's part of a business aspect of what I do. But, um, you know, it's, it's a great experience. I mean, it's a kind of a casual radio format. It doesn't sound like an infomercial. It's just you and I, you being the client right. and, the, and the guest, uh, talking about your book, your product, whatever it is you're interested in. And uh, I need a little time to, of course, do due diligence in terms of preparing for those. But um, they're really great fun, and I really enjoy uh, that aspect of the business. So uh, check that out. And, uh, okay. The, yeah, well, you know, anyway, the, back, the, back to what? Yeah, the, the only criticism I might have of Romney's uh, performance was he said some nice things about Arne Duncan and the, uh, <laughs> yeah. and the race to the top. But I think uh, he had no choice. He can't come out against uh, federal um, you know, yeah. funding of education. But that's something that I'm going to work on when, after he's elected. I'm going to write an open letter to uh, Romney on the whole business of federalized American education because federal education is destroying America. And it's very simple to tell you how it's being done. You see, that because, the, the, because public education has been federalized, they have been able to take religion out of the schools. They have been able to take God out of the schools. And when you remove God from the schools, you create an incredible, diabolical kind of situation. Uh, you know, when I was going to school, there was no such thing as child depression. Mm. Today, it's big business. I've just finished looking at a book of over 800 pages on adolescent depression. I know, adolescent no suicide. You know, you have suicide. Why would an American adolescent commit suicide in a nation 
that gives them everything they ever wanted, you know, as far as material things go. It's because of that spiritual lack, that spiritual wasteland, which is American uh, public education. And because it's been federalized, that's how they've been able to remove God from the schools. That's why they've got to get the federal government out of education. That's the only solution. Uh, you take, for example, Jeb Bush's Foundation for Excellence in Education. Mm-hmm. They never talk about the spiritual dimension that's missing. They talk about the, you know, this common core standards, which I've looked at, and which is a lot of BS. I was going to ask you about that, Sam, because first of all, um, Mid Rom- you're right, Mitt Romney didn't get into that. I would have liked to have seen him take on the teachers' unions. I think that would have been a winning issue for him. I think that uh, that's what helped Scott Walker win win. Uh, the, defeat the attempt to have him deposed from office in That's Wisconsin. Right. I would have. I think that you know, if I could criticize Mitt Romney, I would have. I think he should get on that and talk about the growth of the public sector and the unionization of the public sector, how devastating that's been. But he kind of, you know, I don't think he he probably felt that he didn't want to go that far. But um, you know, you're right. I was going to ask you about this Common Core because I interviewed Stanley Kurtz. Um, who's yes. written a book about this. I'm not, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Well, I'm familiar with him, but what's the title of the book? That I don't have in front of me right now, but he came on my show. He was, I think he's a writer for the Washington Post. Right. He's a pretty, pretty mainstream guy, but he's, he was very much on this issue. He said this Common Core is a curriculum that is being implemented across the country in all 50 states. If Obama is reelected, this is, he said, if there's any reason at all to, to stop Obama, it's this. He plans on implementing this Common Core curriculum in all 50 states. And if, if I recall, and you might correct me if I'm wrong, it was about a year ago in Massachusetts, it was like a, maybe a one-day story, that Deval Patrick, who has to be viewed as one of the biggest change agents around, he yeah. embraced Common Core as the curriculum for, for Massachusetts schools, and there was a bit of a murmur about it amongst many people, a brief one, at least that which we heard about, because the the Common Core curriculum actually is a lot worse than and a lot dumber than Massachusetts standards right now. In other words, he actually literally dumbed down the education of this state in order to fit into this Common Core. Yeah, the Common Core curriculum, which I've just started looking into, I just looked at the the language arts portion of it, and it is so complicated, it is so convoluted, that it could never be implemented. That's that's one thing. It's, right. it's beyond implementation. You cannot implement something so complex and so stupid. I see the Common Core curriculum as simply being the biggest financial boondoggle for the educators in this country. You know, we have all of these graduate, uh, these uh, doctors of education in American universities, and they have to have something to do to earn their living. So they create this incredible program that's going to require billions of dollars of implementation and they're not going to solve any problems. They're not going to improve education at all. So no, they're not create in the problems. area of reading, you know. Oh, they're going what to create that? problems quite deliberately, like, as you say, child depression, removing yes. 
that's spiritual content from school. It's a materialist agenda. And uh, it's uh, this one is, I think, more blatant than others. You know, the convoluted language is a classic symptom of that. You know, the left likes to put in very confusing language on anything very deliberately as a way to, you know, what it does is it, it actually creates dissonance in the mind when you hear it, but you walk away from it thinking, oh, gee, I guess they're smarter than I am. They must know something yeah. I don't know. You know, a classic... What? You know, as a matter of fact, that's that's one of the things that uh, Obama uh, sort of exhibited, that kind of convoluted thinking. Right. I mean, he would, you know, spout out about taxes in a way that who could understand what he was talking about? And even Romney said, well, I can't, uh, you know. I know. I thought that was the best line of the entire debate yeah, when Romney turned you know, to him and he said, I have no idea what you're talking what about. You're talking about. <laughs> As a matter of fact, uh, Obama said that he has reduced taxes for, on small business 18 times. Where are the 18 a complete lie. times? Huh? I know. I'd, I'd love to, those are complete lies. But uh, the, the uh, I think that Bill Clinton in the um, in the Democratic Convention he had on display this very uh, tactic. Except Clinton is actually very good at it, whereas oh, Obama does. is not so good. Yeah, I mean he's very slick in that what he does, and I noticed this because this is what he did throughout his presidency, is when he discusses a topic, he will launch into all of these undigested out-of-context figures that don't mean anything. Well, there's 255,000 such-and-such, and there's 328,000 this one. And he strings it all together in this fascinating montage. Nobody knows what he's talking about, but he does it in such a way that he ends the little segment by saying, and that's why the Republicans are wrong, that's why they don't know what they're talking about when they talk about Medicare or whatever issue. And, and you walk away from that, it's almost hypnotic. You walk away from it with, without questioning these figures. You're thinking, gee, I guess the Republicans must be wrong. I don't remember why they're wrong, but if Bill Clinton had all these facts and figures, yeah. then they must be. It's, you know, it's a classic propaganda tool of deception. I think it goes back to Edward Bernays in his days when he was working for the Rockefellers. Right. But another thing about um, Obama's performance is that it was so boring. You know, yes. he said nothing that was, you know, uh, it was a really yawning kind of performance. I mean, you listen to him, and there was nothing new. There was nothing interesting. There wasn't yeah. even a, 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 any, uh, you know, dramatic wordplay. And you look at, and he, at looked, he looked so tired, and he looked just like he didn't really feel like being there. You know, he just uh, kind of was almost like walking through it. <laughs> that's and it. I mean, plus, he had no teleprompter. That's right. <laughs> you know, he he always uses a teleprompter. Do you know he actually even had a teleprompter when he addressed a school class of eleven-year-olds? Well, what I mean, he, no kidding, a teleprompter. Yeah, he needs a teleprompter. I mean, the man doesn't move without his teleprompter. It's like it's like an extra appendage. He has everything written out for him. He is basically reading off of a page other people's words that other people wrote. He doesn't you know, say the, anything. You know, the interesting thing is that the, the, his his liberal critics are you know are saying, why didn't you mention the thirty four percent? Why didn't you talk about <laughs> Bain Capital? The thing is that probably Romney was very well prepared oh, yeah. to answer those because he expected 
that uh, that Obama would mention the 34% and and Bain Capital. Absolutely. So I think he was like ducking and covering because he knew that if he opened his mouth and said something about that, Romney was going to come back with a pretty good brick. Yeah. You know, it would have been that simple. I mean, it was it was not something. He just seemed like he was just trying to walk through it. He, I, I think he felt like, you know, gee, I mean, I, I, I could charm my way through this like I do with everything else and just smile right. and talk he folksy about my grandmother. Way. You know, he yeah. kept telling, talking and telling stories about his grandmother and just – he just felt that he didn't have to say much because that's how he's always done it. But, Sam, right. the, the strategy of the Democrats this year is classic left-wing agitprop. Now, I about last June, uh, I and my former co-host attended a conference in Providence, Rhode Island, called Netroots Nation. I don't know if you know about that. No, no. What, what was that about? It's a national yearly gathering of left-wing activists and bloggers and the people who do internet shows and they had um, uh, like a radio row where they had blog shows and radio shows and various hosts set up and and uh, my co-host and i set a table up and we actually did our broadcast from netroots nation but i got to a first-hand look at at how the left is doing things this year uh, none other than elizabeth warren was there speaking what a fraud she is did you oh, hear she's the latest? a Marxist. She's a, did, you know, class warfare Marxist. But did you no hear the latest? The latest no, Elizabeth Warren shocker? This, if this had been a conservative, they, it would have been worse than what they did to Todd Aiken. It would have been, which he just made one silly comment. I mean, this is, she apparently was hired by Dow Chemical as a, uh, as a lawyer, paid a six-figure salary to do this, to stop women who were suing them because they had, physical and uh, diseases due to their breast implants. Mm-hmm. Now, can you imagine if that had been a conservative helping a, a greedy chemical corporation to screw women out of their financial settlements? Yes, I mean, this uh, is Elizabeth I, Warren. I know, uh, you know, that's the latest. Well, that's, uh, that'll come out. and uh, It will, but they don't seem to care. They just I, I look, I don't think she can win at this point, but so the, her followers are just goose stepping along, and you know she's for the little guy. I mean Scott Brown. I don't know if you saw the debate, but he brought this up also when no, he pointed I, I out the, the the one comment that he made that was very insightful, and I thought he was very good, was when she talked about you know he talked about her being hired by a a, a steel company to screw over coal workers unions. Now this right. is supposed to be the champion of the little guy. You know, and mm-hmm. how she was hired by Travelers Insurance to screw over people with asbestos cancer who had paid into a their their insurance policy, and Travelers wanted to get uh, immunity from from these settlements. They hire Elizabeth Warren, give her a quarter of a million dollars, and she sets up some phony fund which basically gave them immunity from these settlements, and they never paid the fund. But the point mm-hmm. is that she then turns around and says. Oh, no, I was there championing the cause of asbestos victims. I'm helping the asbestos victims. I want to help the little guy against the billionaires and the billionaires. And Scott Brown turned to her and he said, you know, I hardly think that Travelers Insurance was paying you a quarter of a million dollars to help the workers. (laughs) I mean, it just doesn't really add up. Yeah, but yet I, I, she gets away with it. Anyway, getting back to the uh, Netroots Nation, the um, 
there were strategy sessions there about how to proceed in the next election. I got to hear a little bit of this. I didn't hear the whole thing as a lot of it was off the record. But the strategy that was decided is, is exactly how they've rolled it out. And that is that every time Mitt Romney or every time any Republican opens their mouth and says anything, they are to stand up on their hind legs and scream, liar, liar, liar. Everyone's lying. And if you listen, that is exactly what they do. I mean, I get the left-wing blogs. I had a left-wing talk show host uh, partner. I've interviewed left-wing people. And that is the sum total of what their presentation is, that everything that Mitt Romney says is lying. And, you know, there's an old axiom in amongst the left, people who have studied communism, people who understand mm-hmm. how, how Marxism works when it's enthroned, is that there is a tendency to project that which you're doing onto your opponent. In other words, that it is not only are they lying, but their entire edifice, their entire political philosophy is based upon a big lie. So what they do to deflect that, and they, I don't even know if they're necessarily conscious of it, is they will then claim that the other side is lying, that oh, yeah, a conservative that's... is lying. In a sense, yeah. they're, they're reflecting their own values onto the uh, the conservative. They're, they're projecting, and that's something that's part, I think, of psychology anyways. But uh, but that's what they're doing. I mean, Mitt Romney's lying. That's what they came out with today. Well, you know, that's Axelrod's frame of mind. I mean, Oh, and Axelrod is a – talk about red diaper babies. Yeah, his parents and, were both communists, just like Obama's. I mean, yeah, these people know, were Chicago commies. Absolutely, and uh, you're absolutely right about the lying. And of course, Satan is the father of lies. That's right. <laughs> and, and so, uh, and, from a religious point of view, it, it's it, it makes total sense that that. Sam, would be are you their familiar tactic. with the? Are you familiar with the writings of uh, of Father Richard Wormbrand? Oh yeah, yeah. I've read his his little book and uh, where he he where he talks about Marxism. Exactly, um, and he has he has many good books, but my favorite, and I've read his books, is a little book called Marx and Satan. Yes, yeah. And and he and shows Marx how Marx was, was actually right. Marx was a practicing Satanist. Right, right. I mean, he actually shows this, and I, I've read some other material that indicates that as well, and that yes, the whole edifice of Satanism is to take everything that is good and turn it on its head and and that evil becomes good, good becomes evil, you know, truth becomes falsehood, falsehood becomes truth. There is a complete jumbling of um, of that which is right versus wrong, that which is real which, which versus which is unreal. And and that's that's what Marxism is all about it's been it's 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 as Whitaker Chambers said it's the oldest second oldest religion known to man I mean it goes back to the Garden of Eden right. and uh, and then what they do is they dissemble and they 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 I don't even know if they're necessarily conscious of it I think that some of them have been obviously but you know they're 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 deflecting you know they invent reality every day they wake up and so they they can do this I mean they can create these these false Mirages. Yeah, well, you see, that's why these atheist public schools are so evil, is because by rejecting God, they are adopting Satanism. I mean, it's automatic. If you right. if you reject God, you you accept Satanism, 
and incidentally, my latest column on the new uh, the new American is entitled "Why Children Need Godly Schools." Wonderful. And I go through, you know, I I I've just found this book recently uh, about uh, children being born believers. It's a book by Dr. Justin Barrett, and the title of the book is "Born Believers: The Science of Children's Religious Belief." And he says, um, as well as his colleagues, that children are born believing in a supernatural uh, being. Right. Uh, and he writes, he says, regardless of culture and without need for coercive indoctrination, children develop with a propensity to seek meaning and understanding of their environments. Given the way their minds naturally develop, this search leads to beliefs in a purposeful and designed world, an intelligent designer behind the design, an assumption that the intentional designer is super powerful, super knowing, super perceiving, and immortal. Mm. Quote. What that means is that when a believing child enters a, an atheist public school, and is told that his views are superstitions, you know, that are nonsensical superstitions, that there is no God, that life has no spiritual dimension, and that their lives have no transcendent meaning. In essence, they're telling the kids that they are no better than their pet packs and dogs, you see. Well, you yeah, I mean, I think that what, what, what I hear there, Sam, is that Belief in a creator of the universe and a, and a lawgiver, a supernatural element, a soul, a spirit. Right. I mean, the part of life that is bigger than uh, material. That's natural. That is natural to the human being. Thomas Jefferson, who was not known to be religious, put it best in the Declaration of Independence. That's it's self-evident it. self that we're endowed right. by our creator, God. So, you know, this is something that... Uh, yeah, you know. Well, well, can you imagine our founding fathers without belief in God? Of course. Would they have created the uh, an American republic without belief in God? Would have you been see, impossible. Sam, this, this is why I, I mean I've pointed out and I've speculated that this is why conservatism is not an ism. Really, it's not an ideology. It's natural. It's what people are. It is who we are. We believe in a creator. We believe in self-interest. We believe in family as an organic entity. We believe in God. We believe in sovereignty as a way to protect our natural rights. You know, we believe that there is a, a moral code that was given but revealed by God, whether we're Jewish, Christian, Muslim, or what. And that we understand that these moral codes are above and beyond the manipulation of man-made entities. And well, this is why... I, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, this is why the left has to invent this idea of overthrowing God or denying God, firstly, and secondly, replacing that with um, with evolution and with, with other philosophies that are false, because and that it takes an effort to do that, you, because it, it runs against human nature. This isn't well, who not, we are. Not, yeah, not only that, but when you have schools that that reject God, you can right. imagine what that does to a child. Uh, education without God is evil, absolute right. evil. 
And yet we have an education system in this country that, that absorbs billions of dollars. You know, as a matter of fact, uh, more uh, the uh, the um, river the uh, cash flow into public education in this country is almost as great as national security, and yet all of that is uh, is used to deliberately remove God from the lives of children. You know, it's interesting that Barrett it takes a lot of money this, to do that. Right, Barrett in this book uh, talks about atheism. He writes, he says. Atheism is rarer than you might think. If you are one of those people who never recalls having believed in any kind of God, then the first thing you must understand is that you are very unusual. Atheists who only hear their colleagues affirm atheism are even more likely to think that everyone around them is an atheist. Belief in gods is the norm, and non-belief has been very unusual indeed hmm. so you can see here is a small minority of atheists who have taken over American public education and they are determined to destroy the religious beliefs of American children and the result is that you've got this burgeoning uh, phenomenon of uh, teenage uh, suicide depression and illness as a matter of fact what the book also states that uh, research, let me quote, research does indicate that commitment to a religious belief system and participation in a religious community is associated with many positive outcomes. Actively religious people have been shown to enjoy more mental and emotional health, recover from trauma more quickly, have longer and happier lives, are more generous, volunteer more, and actively contribute to communities more more, uh, more than nominally religious or non-religious people do. And of course, you know, when you look at who are the greatest givers to charity, it's the Christians, not the uh, the liberals. Want the government to spend, to do spend the money? They don't spend their own money. Even Obama doesn't spend much money on charity. Whereas uh, Rod, Romney, Romney has spent millions of money, given away millions of dollars, you know, to, for charitable purposes. So it's quite interesting what this book brings out. Of course, not all religions are the same. And I believe that right. Islamists who are driven to violence by their interpretation of the Koran are not committed to the pursuit of happiness, but to the pursuit of death. Sam, also, I have, uh, I've been doing some research on that topic, and um, I'm looking at that a little differently than I had previous. Uh-huh. I'm, a- I'm actually researching for a new book. You know, my, you know I wrote for World Net Daily, The Nazi Connection to Islamic Terrorism. Correct. Well, Correct. now I'm writing the book, The Communist Connection to Islamic, Islamic Terrorism. And what I've discovered, and it's information that's it's kind of out there, it doesn't surprise me, is that, first of all, Islam is vulnerable to uh, much more so than Christianity and Judaism, which are not really part of this, to communism, because Islam does call for physical conquest of the world through jihad, which, of course, is exactly the same as communism, which calls for revolution. And, right, and a physical revolution. 
That's right. If to conquer the world, to create a one-world government where everybody becomes part of an international ant colony, where we lose our identity, where we become apparatchiks, we become uh, we no longer. You mean Karl Marx viewed as false consciousness, such things as as uh, self-interest, trade, family, love, commitments. You know, I mean, sovereignty, property. You know, these things all he felt were false, and they were created by people who secretly wanted to enslave us and exploit us, you know, the theory of exploitation. And and that resonates with Islam because Islam, more than other religions, tends to also call for a physical conquest because Muhammad, toward the end of his life, he uh, was also a political and military leader. He had conquered most of the Arabian Peninsula. So there's the later part of the Quran gets into this aspect. But the thing is that I, I think it also needs to be pointed out that Islam still is a monotheistic faith. They believe in God, just like we do, in my opinion. They believe in Jesus. They believe in the uh, the morals of the Torah. Uh, but the problem is that there's two parts of the Quran. There's the first part, which is more like the uh, Old and New Testament. And then there's the second part, which becomes more like a communist bo- book, How to Conquer the World, and I think that the two parts throughout history have generally balanced each other out and that Islam has the potential for being a, a like the other Western religions if they maintain a balance and if they continue to do what moderate Muslims have done, which is interpret concepts like jihad as a personal quest and, uh, and as a voluntary relationship with, with God, but what happened was that the communists, starting in the late 19th century, as they infiltrated into the Middle East, and I named the names, and then this accelerated after, of course, the Bolshevik Revolution, they took the Quran, they cut off the first half and threw it in the garbage. They took the second half and they magnified it to the point where this became the main tenet of the faith, jihad as a bloody revolution. We have to liberate the world to create a utopia. And well, they yeah, then Saddam Hussein was a Stalinist. He, well, that's what I'm saying, Sam. They, what yeah. they did was they spawned a new kind of Islam, based what I call in the book Islamo-communism, that is not conventional Islam. It's it's uh, you know if you take a look, for example, uh, at the Ayatollah Khomeini and the, and the mullahs. These people are communists. They were trained in Moscow at a I, I named the school that they were trained in. That they are they, they were financed, propagandized, promoted, militarily trained and by communists in Moscow. The same thing with the Bath movement. It is a communist movement. It's uh they may they, they may you know, put on the garb of Islam and think that they're acting Islamic and that they're acting like the the Muhammad and their ancient times. But but they, they, many of them are conscious, and others are deluded. They don't realize that the that what their belief what their belief system has nothing to do with with monotheism. They don't even believe in God. I mean, these people are communists. Same thing with you know with with Nasser. Same thing with the Muslim Brotherhood, which was started by a communist. I get into that in my first book. Uh, same thing with the Saudi royal family. These people are communists. You know, the, the 9-11 hijackers, they were communists. Bin Laden, he's a communist. You know, this is, 
and Islamic communism. It is not conventional Islam. And I think that if the Islamic world could wake up to this, then they would reject it and they would get back to, you know, it's a backward religion. I mean, there's no question about that. But there is hope that they could advance if they shed this communist conspiracy that has had the, held them in their grip. Oh, that's that's incredibly interesting. And uh, when will your book be uh, published? Well, Sam, I don't know. I mean, I'm work. I'm more than halfway finished with it. I mean, it's uh, you know, I'm working on it. I've got is, an agent. Is, is WorldNet Daily working? Uh, going to publish it? I don't know. I don't oh, know. I see. You know, they, they, you know, Joe Farris is, is very very cagey fellow. You know that. Yeah, I know. Uh, by the way, um, do you uh, do you have you have an agent? You say I do, I do. Well, that's 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 important because uh, many publishers will not even look at a manuscript unless it comes to them through an agent. That's that's so correct. That's, yeah, that's so that, that's good. Yeah, and he likes the book. He's he's uh, he actually is in touch with big some pretty big publishers like Regnery. So uh-huh. we'll, we'll see what happens. I, I think that I've got some things to say in this. Um, and well, I think that yeah, it's a fascinating thesis, and it should you know it really sort of um, uh, you might say is is an outgrowth of what Wormbrun wrote in his book about Marx and Satan. You know, because the, way, all, Sam, the, the, the basic the the basic um, premise of all of these uh, so-called religions is that they're satanically based. Speaking of communism, Sam, I actually recently, about a week ago, I interviewed an author of a new book. His name is John Coster, and his book is called Operation Snow, How the Soviet Mole, How a Soviet Mole in the FDR White House Triggered Pearl Harbor. Now, Uh this is is really interesting because the book is all about Harry Dexter White. Uh And um, I've I've done research on Harry Dexter White. Who of oh, course I know. was yeah. yeah I mean he was uh, you know he was definitely a pro-communist operative at a very high level in the Roosevelt administration. He was assistant secretary of the treasury. He was the sort of the brains behind Morgenthau, who apparently wasn't all that bright. Yeah. And well, I mean uh, you, uh, you've done a lot of research on that whole period with with uh, yeah. Whitaker Chambers and uh, uh, you know the United Nations was created by. Communists and the NEA was in favor of world government and created UNESCO as a incipient uh, world board of education. So, and 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 it's interesting how the NEA was taken over by the progressives, and I believe the the progressives were satanically inspired. People like John Dewey, they may oh, not have yeah. done that, you know, they may not have done it consciously. But certainly they were against the religion of their fathers. Oh, absolutely. And, and Dewey, is, you, you pulled down some fantastic quotes in your book, NEA Trojan Horse in American Education, which show that Dewey, he wanted to change education from one based on, as he said, church-going and fatherhood, and turn it into what he called, quote, fusion, unquote. Yes. yes. But, Sam, getting back briefly to the John Costas premise. He works on recently declassified information, and what he shows was that after June of 1941, when Hitler double-crossed his ally, Stalin, and invaded Russia, 
in Operation Barbarossa, the Stalinists wanted to draw the United States into the war because they wanted to have a two-front war. They didn't want to. They were afraid of the Japanese. You know, the, the Japanese were, had defeated them apparently in a battle in Manchuria with very right. great, with very grave um, losses, and they wanted yeah. to pull their army into defending uh, Moscow. So they asked Harry Dexter White, and he shows this, you know, the, the documents to try to goad the uh, Japanese into attacking the United States as a way to draw the United States into the war. Now, it should be noted that at that time, most Americans were against entering the war, both on the left and the right, except, of course, the well, even the Communist Party was against it until they um, were – Stalin double-crossed Hitler, and then then they were for it. But uh, right, right. Most average Americans, liberal and conservative, did not want to go into the war. The America First movement was made up of both liberals and conservatives, and that yes. Roosevelt needed to get, you know, he wanted to get the United States in the war mainly because he wanted to help the British. He was an Anglophile. Right, but, right. But, and but, of course, there was this strong relationship between uh, Roosevelt and Churchill. You right. See. That's right. But the thing is that Harry Dexter White concocted a situation in which the Japanese would be cornered into attacking Pearl Harbor. That's according to the premise of this book. And he shows that um, – and also uh, uh, Dean Acheson, who is also a rather sinister figure. Dean, uh, Roosevelt does not come across in this book as the brightest bulb in the chandelier. I mean, he, <laughs> I like Roosevelt that. in the summer of 1941 was depressed because his mother had died, who apparently lived in the bedroom next to his in the White House and who ran his life. And his mistress had had a stroke, that being Missy Lee Hand. Uh-huh. So he was not himself. He was, you know, he would talk about well-bred, you know, spoiled elitist. I mean, he was everything that they said George Bush was. But uh, And he was distracted, and he was off on a vacation. And while he was vacationing, um, Dean Acheson, operating as Assistant Secretary of State, he tightened sanctions against the Japanese uh, with regard to oil shipments. He cut off all oil shipments. Right. I mean, they, wa- yeah. they wanted to do a slight sanction only because they were protesting the fact that the Japanese had occupied uh, North Vietnam and that they had uh, bombed an American ship which was probably reasonable, but he tightened it so that there would be no oil. And then uh, the Japanese sent two diplomats to Washington, both very high-level people. They sat down with Cordell Hull, who was the Secretary of State, and negotiated an agreement uh, to basically uh, – they agreed that they would withdraw from North Vietnam. They made a few other changes, and that Cordell Hull would sign a, a peace pact with them and that there'd be no aggression, and it was like a five-year agreement. Um, and when Harry Dexter White got wind of this, he went berserk. He said, this is like Munich. We're surrendering to the Japanese. And he put forth a memorandum that he said would have to be adhered to by the Japanese. And when you read this thing, and it's republished in the book, it would be – no nation in the world would accept it. I mean, you know, if if we had done this to Luxembourg, they would have declared war against us. It basically mm-hmm. was an end of Japanese sovereignty. They had to withdraw from all territories except the main island. They had to sign a 10-year pact with us in which they'd have to turn 20% of their manufacturing product over to us at a discount. I mean, it was these these strictures which were just unacceptable 
for any nation. And of course, Jap- and this was with the understanding that Japan was a society that was very much based upon Asian principles of honor and you know and pride and public image. And and that Japan was a country that was the only Asian nation that never was colonized by the Europeans. They were very proud. They were a strong superpower at that point, especially after they defeated the Tsar in 1905. And and to ask them to do this was literally a uh, declaration of war, which was how they took it. And once those that memorandum was transferred over to them and their diplomats, they within a week or so from that they bombed Pearl Harbor. Now the uh, the contention of this author is that um, Harry Dexter White did this because he was being directed to do it by Stalin, and that you know it was unnecessary. The United States had no reason to put those kinds of sanctions on Japan. Uh, it was and Roosevelt he kind of half wittingly went along with it because he wanted to get the United States. Part of him wanted to get into the war. Part of him didn't. He was pretty indecisive. Um, but you know what's also interesting about this is that uh, after um, after uh, Washington declared war, Roosevelt declared war on um, on Germany on the, on the Japanese. Then Hitler declared war on the United States. Now, why did Hitler do that? I have no idea, but it was insane. I mean, it obviously, yeah, it was. You know, that was it was not a natural thing to do at that point. You know, to then bring the United States into this thing and in Europe. Uh, of course, that's what Churchill was hoping for. Well, what, what did, was, was that, that how it, is that how it happened, Sam? I mean, that, that the Nazis declared war in the United States? Oh, yes. Or Hitler did we declare war, war in Germany? Germany? No, no. Hitler declared war on us. Because of the tripartite agreement with Japan. I suppose that must that must have been it. Well, they had a tripartite agreement between Japan, Germany, and Italy that right, any that war declared on powers. one party was a decla- was declared on all three. Yeah, that's called the Axis powers, you know. That's right. That's right. So, so that's, so that's why he did it. That's what probably happened. And, and, and I think it needs to be understood that uh, up until that point, the Nazis did not plan on liquidating the Jewish population of Europe. That came after Pearl Harbor. I mean, that oh, was... Yes. Before that, I mean, I'm not saying they were nice guys. I mean, they were murdering thousands of Jews, of course. But there was no final solution program in place. Uh, You know, they wanted to export the Jews, and of course they couldn't because of anti-Semites in the U.S. State Department and an anti-Semitic prime minister of Canada refused to allow Jews. That we know about, the Evian Conference. And Hitler, of course, had a real chuckle over that. He's like, oh, really, here they are, self-righteous pounding their chests, and yet they won't let in any Jews. But it was only after the Pearl Harbor attack that, that the Nazis decided to liquidate the Jews of Europe. So, you know, yeah, how that, that, was the, that was that Wannsee conference that was exactly. held. I don't know the date of that. It was in 1942. I, right. So it was and, and Pearl Harbor United was 1941. States. Exactly. Right. Yeah. The Mufti yeah. also had a hand in it. But, yeah. uh you know, the, the Harry Dexter White has to be viewed as one of the most sinister figures in world history. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the things that he was well, involved um, in. Well, we we knew that he uh, it had come out that he was a Soviet agent. Yes. But, you know, we never really knew the extent to which these Soviet agents were able to manipulate 
Roosevelt and the American government. Well, Roosevelt uh, was, you know, I think Roosevelt was somebody who, as I said, I don't think he was the brightest figure. I think he was an egomaniac who, right. who responded to his, his ego being massaged. And he was surrounded by communists, including possibly his own wife. Oh, and yeah. they lived, and he had a, he was disabled. He couldn't get around, and he lived in the White House almost as a captive prisoner. Right down right. the hall in the White House was Laughlin Curry, who was a communist and who was his chief legal counsel. He called him Loth. Mm-hmm. And uh, Laughlin Curry was uh, right after the war, and when he was when he was called up for congressional questioning, he fled the country, never to return. Uh, another uh, one was Virginius Franco, who was uh, who Roosevelt named as the head of the World Bank, also fled the country in front of a congressional investigation, settled in Beijing, where he died in 1970. So you know, I I know you were planning to write a book about uh, Harry Dexter White. Have yes, ever, I was. Have you ever, uh, you know, gotten it's very one of the, far? I, I, I kind of put it in the back burner. In that, but I'll say one thing about it, Sam. That was interesting. When I, I was in Washington with my wife, she had some business, and I I took some time to go to the National Archives in in Maryland, and right. do some research on Harry Dexter White, and I actually got to see some pretty interesting letters that he wrote to various people who were communists, and it was pretty good. But but there was a whole ton of information on both Harry Dexter White and on other communists in the Roosevelt administration that is still classified. And, really? Uh, yes. And, and, of course, that raises the question, you know, why why would this still be classified? This isn't national security. We're talking about something that happened over half a century ago now. We're talking about, uh, you know, the Soviet Union is dead. You know, why are they still classifying it? Obviously because they're protecting uh, people's reputation still. That's true, but you might be able to get what is that uh, freedom of information? Law? Yeah, right. It's I a long process, the, and it's something that is. I, I may do at some point. I don't know. Um, well, uh, this you, guy, but you, you need the, the help of a publisher who's willing to finance this. That's right, I do. And this guy, John Coster, did a pretty good job, even just getting a couple of things declassified about Harry Dexter White, and him, that's only the tip of the iceberg. I mean, he was a major operator. You know, he also makes one quick reference in this book to Eleanor Roosevelt, which um, is interesting. He talks about the Venona decryptions. Are you familiar with that? Oh, yeah, yeah. They were de- they were uh, We had cracked the Soviet code, and we were listening in on conversations. Well, when Eleanor Roosevelt got wind of this, and he doesn't say how she got wind of it. Nobody knows. But somehow somebody dropped a dime, and she found out about it. And she then demanded that the Venona uh, investigation be stopped and, and threatened to expose it if it wasn't. And it was stopped. And so after 1945, around maybe January of 1945, we were no longer listening in on Soviet conversations. Uh, now, doesn't that raise some questions about Eleanor Roosevelt? Oh, absolutely. 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 You see, Sam, I, this is a complete conjecture on my part, but I think there's a possibility, and you have to consider this, that Franklin Roosevelt was assassinated, that he was murdered. And the reason I say that is because after Yalta, which he was completely blown out of the water by by Stalin, and he felt that he, oh, I'll charm Stalin. Stalin listens to me. I mean, he was so full of himself that he believed that his personality could make things happen, but 
a few weeks after Yalta, he did become aware of the fact that he had been betrayed and that Stalin was going to be occupying Poland and other countries. And he was furious. And there were, there were email exchange, well, email, there were, there were telegram exchanges between Roosevelt and Churchill where he says, we have been had. The Russians are moving into Eastern Europe. We have to do something. This is, we can't stand for this. And, Ro- and Churchill was going back and forth, and they were, like, realizing and then all of a sudden he dies. Now, there were people around Roosevelt, including his wife and Laughlin Curry and other people, you know, Harry Hopkins, who was not necessarily a communist, but he was certainly a, 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 an asset, who wanted to see the Soviets succeed after the war and who would have done anything to make sure that happened. And if Franklin Roosevelt, who was, as I said, he was disabled, he was being held hostage, if he was going to be someone who would blow the whistle and stand in the way, then he could be put. He could be put aside. He could be eliminated. Now I know well, that. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. Didn't he die of a hemorrhage, a a, a stroke? Well, that's the story. Uh, yeah. That's the story, and and it's true that he was not in great health. But nevertheless, when someone dies at uh, who is a world leader at a time when some you you have to take a look at. Who benefits? You know, it's it, it's it could be that natural. Maybe it was, but I think it has to be considered that he was in the way of um, of the Soviet uh, advance at that point. He was seen yes. as an, an obstacle. Yes. Anyway, Sam, but that's my thoughts. I, we've pretty much reached the end of the hour. Okay. It's All been right, a great well, pleasure. Great being on your show. And uh, uh, do you want me on on Wednesdays? You prefer me on Wednesday? Every Wednesday, Sam, at noon. Okay, then I will be on next Wednesday at noon. Thanks a lot, Sam. My pleasure. I'll I'll talk to you soon. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks, and we shall return after this. is the number if you'd like to join us here at Chuck Moore Speaks Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. 347-327-9849, Blog Talk Radio, and, of course, our host station, Cyber Station USA Radio Network. Welcome aboard. The program is moving along. There was a program last week that uh, in which there was over 500 downloads of a podcast, so... This program is picking up steam. It's uh, it's doing much better than it had done 
in previous manifestations. I mean, there's already great interest uh, in terms of um, of uh, re-listens and live listens. I, I, fortunately, because um, there's an online aspect to it, I can keep a record of that. So uh, I appreciate that. I also want to mention to our listeners that um, I am involved, if you're interested, in creating podcasts for you. If you have a book, you have a service, you have a, a product, I uh, contact me. Uh, I, I'll interview you on a program. Uh, you'll go live on Blog Talk Radio, and then you get a podcast. So that's a new service being offered by Chuck Moore Speaks. I usually do those on weekends. I just did one last Sunday that was very interesting. It was a. Uh, it was at, Well, I'll, I'll, I'll get into what it is once we have the podcast up. But um, you're welcome to join the program. Three four seven three two seven nine eight four nine. That's 347-327-9849. The the Drudge Report has unemployment levels dropping to 7.8%. Seems like an awfully convenient time for that to happen, just uh, three or four weeks before an election. Um, I I have trouble believing that figure. I don't believe that's true. I think that the government has released various figures this past couple of years that have proven to be untrue. Um, one of them is the cost of Obamacare, which it turns out is going to be triple what it originally was projected to be by the Office of Management and Budget. They then revised their figures later on. Another is the unemployment figure, which we know the way it's calculated is untrue. Um, it's actually uh, unemployment is gr- a great deal more than the way they do this. There's probably upwards of 15 million unemployed people in this country. Um, unemployment, they, they have funny ways of not counting uh, people as unemployed because they no longer are looking for a job. So, you know, I think this is a, an October surprise for Obama. Uh, there may be others coming down the pike. You know, these guys are going to do anything they can to drag him over the finish line and help him win. And, um, you know, they may succeed. I hate the thought of four more years of Obama. But uh, the Rasmussen poll is out today. And Rasmussen is a pretty accurate poll. I mean, they go back to the 1990s. They they poll only regular voters, people who have a voting track record. And I think one of the ways that the Obama people – and their allies are, have been trying to win the election is by claiming that Obama is go, getting ahead in various states, and particularly Ohio, and uh, with the implication being that um, that it's all over. Forget it. It's over. We're going to win. Don't bother to vote. We're so, you know, we, we've got it in the bag. And those those polls, I would argue, are false. They are skewed. They're based upon projections of voting numbers that were commensurate to 2008, which was a very high voting year. There's no evidence that that's going to happen again. There's no evidence that people are that enthusiastic this time around, especially for Obama. But the general figure that has been bandied about has been that Obama is seven points or eight points ahead in Ohio. Well, today's Rasmussen poll has Ohio, Obama 50%, Romney 49%. So, 
So that's almost a, that is a dead heat if you consider the three-point margin of error. And the only thing I, I, that troubles me about that is it means there's only 1% undecided. That's not good. But nevertheless, Obama is by no means eight points ahead. He's one point ahead in that poll. And uh, then, of course, you have uh, Rasmussen reporting on Virginia, which has Romney at 49, Obama at 48. So, you know, that, again, is margin of error. But there's more undecideds in Virginia than there are in Ohio, according to the Rasmussen poll. The daily poll, presidential tracking poll, has Obama at 49, Romney at 47, which is within the margin of error. It's a dead heat. There's still that means there's still four percent undecided. I actually would rather see more undecideds, and I think that um, we may see that as these these uh, debates unfold. If if Obama continues to perform as poorly as he did uh, last one, um, and I think even Paul Ryan's debate might help uh, against Joe Biden. That these things are going to not necessarily help Romney directly, but they're going to help push more people into the undecided column, which will help Romney, I think, on Election Day. So let me welcome aboard our affiliate stations, WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida, KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon, Stitches, which is our, our app site. You can download the program anywhere you want. And, of course, uh, you're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks on Cyberstation USA Radio Network and Blog Talk Radio. Welcome aboard. Come on down. 347-327-9849 is the number. 347-327-9849. I want to thank my good friend, Dr. Samuel Blumenfeld, for joining me in the first hour. <clears throat> Sam and I discussed uh, the debate. We discussed education. We discussed Islam, the nature of Islamic terrorism, which I would contend primarily and essentially is a communist conspiracy. Um, I've been writing. I'm actually writing a book about this called "The Communist Connection to Islamic Terrorism." And we talked about my interview with John Coster, who is the operation, who is the author of Operation Snow how a Soviet mole in FDR's White House triggered Pearl Harbor. <clears throat> the, um, I am, I'm going to take this opportunity, I think, well, I am going to, unless uh, you'd like to call in and join me, 347-327-9849, Chuck Moore Speaks, 347-327-9849, or you can email me at number 4 at gmail.com. I have been invited to speak at a synagogue in Boston uh, a week from Saturday, a week from tomorrow, on the topic of the new Pasha. The Pasha in Judaism is a Torah portion or a portion of the Old Testament that is read weekly in the synagogue in Hebrew when the reader takes out the Torah from the ark and there's a lot of ceremony around that and reads in can in cancellation format the ancient words of the Torah and every week 
a different portion is read until the entire Torah is read. In fact, um, this Saturday is the end of the Torah for the year. We would have reached the last book, of, the last portion, the last parsha of Deuteronomy, and there's a celebration around that called Simchat Torah, in which you basically honor the Torah. There's some dancing, and the Torahs come out of the ark, and everyone dances with it in a in a state of ecstasy sometimes, and even the Torahs end up being walked out onto the streets and. If you if you happen to be driving by a synagogue, for example, in Bo- in Brookline or in Brooklyn, or in other communities where you have a lot of Jews, you'll see Torahs out the street with people dancing and singing. In fact, they do that here in Brookline at Kehilleth Israel, which is on Harvard Street, and I might be there for that. And then, of course, the following week they begin again, and we start reading the Torah again from the beginning. Well, it's a tradition in many synagogues after the daily Torah reading later in the day to have a local congregant stand up and make a little presentation, a commentary on what they believe the Pasha tells us. What are the moral lessons in the Pasha? What are the ethical lessons? Or really any take they want to have on the Pasha. Well, I have been invited to do it a week from Saturday on the Parsha called Bereshit. Now, the Parsha Bereshit is the first Parsha in the Torah. It is the book of Genesis. It is the creation story. It is how God created the universe, how he created the earth. It's about Adam and Eve. It's about, uh, you know, God creating man in his image and all that stuff. And I think that that, for me, is a particularly significant Parsha because I've written a book on this topic, uh, even though it's not yet been published, and that is on the topic of Darwinism or evolution, the science, so-called science of evolution, and how that comports with uh, the Bible. And, of course, this is an extremely controversial topic. So I've decided that since I don't have a guest this hour, I'm going to just talk my way through some of the remarks that I'll be making more as a way to clarify my own thinking on the topic, but also to hopefully generate some thinking amongst my millions and millions of listeners. And maybe uh, that could result in some calls and some comments. Uh, And here's the number if you'd like to join me. 347-327-9849. That number again, 347-327-9849. Chuck Morse speaks. Okay, well, the first controversy, of course, is this alleged conflict between science and faith. Is there such a conflict? I think it was Albert Einstein who was famously stated that faith without science is blind, but science without faith is lame, that they do not contradict each other. They complement each other because they're both true. Science is the study of what we see in the physical universe. It is the study of materialism. And it is building axioms and, and hypothesis and abstract concepts based upon what we can see. Like, for example, mathematics is an abstract means of counting things 
but it starts with a physical ability to count something, like the abacus, counting beads. Other sciences are based upon observable nature, physical nature, um, observable phenomena, things that can be identified, calculated, categorized, and understood. That's what science is. That is the study of science. But the question is, does that study contradict faith, which is not that. Faith is the understanding of the spiritual side of the universe. It's an understanding of the soul. It's an understanding of the spirit, what it is that makes material beings, that being human beings, who they are. You know, if we're going to look at something strictly from a material standpoint, without considering the spiritual side, then the human being is nothing more than a bag, a sack of bones and blood and feces and, um, and filth and germs and everything else that makes up the human body. Nothing more. But we recognize that there is a spiritual side to us. There is a soul. There is something that makes us open our eyes, and it's not just an automatic synopsis of the brain, as a recent guest said to me. It, it is a uh, there's something bigger going on. There is a bigger and there is a bigger purpose. There is a connectedness to something beyond our physical bodies. So, you know, to study science is to study the physical body, but that doesn't mean that there isn't. A, a spiritual side of things. I mean, it's sort of like apples and oranges. To study law means you're not studying medicine. To study medicine means you're not studying law. They're just different specialties in terms of making up the whole, which is human knowledge. And science and faith each are aspects of the greater picture of human knowledge and human experience. One does not contradict the other. They are harmonious. You can't have one without the other. You can't have science in its pure form without at least a general acknowledgement that there is some spiritual or hyper and supernatural aspect to human life or to life in period. And you can't have faith without understanding that there is a explainable scientific universe. Don't worry, they're not coming to take me away here. There was just an ambulance that went by the studio. <laughs> Um, that's my contention. So this whole idea that often is promulgated by the secular, radical secularists, I'd say, and and they do it for self-interest, they do it because they want to control the world, is that we're not physical. We're not just physical species. We're not just animals trapped in a physical body. That there is a spiritual side of things. And that faith deals with that side of things. Now, what about why is the book of Genesis and the, the Bereshit Parsha so important and so universal? And why is it probably the most famous and the most influential of all parts of the Torah? I mean, it, it gets down to the famous question that was asked by Admiral Stockdale in the election of 1992 when he debated... Um, his opponent, who was running for vice president with, with uh, Ross Perot, and he started his comments by saying, 
who am I and where did I come from? And that's what Bereshit is all about. That's what the first part of the Torah is all about. Who are we and where did we come from? How did the universe begin? How did the earth begin? How did man and women begin? And the book of creation, the creation story, which is what Christians call it, argue essentially that man is all descended from one man and one woman. They are called Adam and Eve in the Torah. Now, does that comport with science? I think it does. It's not been contradicted. In fact, there are many scientists and increasing numbers of scientists now who consider, based on genetic information, that all of mankind is descended from one mother, what's called the mitochondrial Eve, and more recently from one father called the Y-chromosome Adam in scientific jargon. So science doesn't contradict this possibility. And to the degree that we do know scientifically the origins of man, there is more opinion and even more proof that the book of Genesis is true than that it isn't. And again, there's nothing that in science that we know today, which is very still a very young project that contradicts it. What about the old earth, new earth conflict between the old earthers who tend to be secularists and the new earthers who tend to be religious? I don't see a contradiction there either, only in that the book of Genesis says, God said, let there be light. But that doesn't mean that it happened in one, and then there was light. That means that there was something that happened on that first day that there was light. But it doesn't mean that there wasn't an earth for a million years before there was light. The earth could have been just something flying in the universe like a ball of, of ice or a ball of rock that was uh, evolving itself physically before that great day when suddenly there was light. There was, uh, and, and in a sense it gets into a more metaphysical question, which is was there light because it was perceived to be light or was there light anyways? But putting that aside, there's nothing in this story that says, for example, that that there was perhaps a number of days in between day number one and day number two. There could have been a thousand years or a hundred thousand years between the moment there was light and the moment there was water covering the firmament. It didn't necessarily happen in a 24-hour period. There is the open question of whether or not there were days or, or years or centuries or millennia in between the moment when there was light and the moment when you could say the earth was, the firmament was fully filled with water. So I don't think that there is necessarily a contradiction scientifically between those who believe in the old earth theories and those who believe that the earth was created in just seven days. I think that you could say that both of those theories are true and that, again, scientific evidence actually would indicate 
that the Earth is not old anyway. I, I think that it indicates that the Earth is younger than um, than many say it is. But that's that's not the topic I want to go too far into. The main topic is what it what is it that the story of Adam and Eve tells us. What it tells us, and this is the important piece, because this is the piece that has led to the freedom, the concept of freedom that we enjoy in the in the United States. And that is that the Torah says that God created man and women in his image did he create them. All right? What that means and what that was understood to mean at the time and where that separated man from all other beings was that every human being, every single life on this planet was created in the image of the creator. And therefore, it is absolutely explicit here, and the rabbi can certainly intervene here because I, I defer to the rabbi if, if, if I'm not right, that all men are created and women are created equal that we are all equal. That is a biblical concept that comes right from the creationist story, that we are all equal. Now, that doesn't mean that we all have equal results in life. We don't. You know, we're not equal in life. I mean, I, I like to consider myself to, you know, I mean, you know, a high school history teacher is not going to be as good at history as Henry Kissinger. You know, a high school science teacher might not know as much about science as as um, Albert Einstein. You know, a high school baseball player is not going to be a good a ball player as Kalyostremsky was in his day. Probably still is. Because we're all different and we have different levels of skill. We're not all equal. No one is equal to anyone else. We're all different. And we're all in some areas, better than others. I mean, Kalyostremsky might be able to hit a better home run, but he may not know as much about, um, you know, the Jewish period, you know, Jewish history during the Hellenic era than I, than I do, you know. I mean, we all have different talents, different skills, and those manifest themselves in different ways, and um, <clears throat> they, they're rewarded or punished in different ways. I mean, that's just part of human existence. We're not equal. We're different. You know, we're separate beings. But the key thing to understand, and by the way, we will never be made equal. That's impossible. And if we were, it would be a world that would be so evil that you can't imagine. But the thing that needs to be understood from the book of Genesis, from, from Breshit, is that we were all created equal. And in that created equal, we have certain rights. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, who is not known to be all that religious, he articulated that very well in the Declaration of Independence, which is the founding document of the American Republic. We are all entitled to certain inalienable rights, natural rights, things that are part and parcel are natural to human happiness, human existence. He specifically mentions life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that we're endowed by our creator with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not by the state, but by God. And I would contrast that both philosophically and scientifically with what the theory of evolution tells us, which is that we are not all created equal. 
we are all created at different, we all exist as animals at different levels of the evolutionary chain. That some people are more evolved than others because of their better breeding, which is what Darwin meant when he talked about um, random selection. Darwin's theory is a theory of breeding. It's that superior members of the species, which is Latin for race, by the way, breed with other superior members of the species or race to give offspring that are superior and that over time, which in, in, in the case of evolution is hundreds of thousands of years, however much time, a billion years, who cares, eventually out pops a new species, a superior species, a more evolved species. To, to be evolved is to be made superior. You can look it up in the dictionary. That's what the literal meaning is. That's how Darwin meant it. To, be, to evolve is to get superior. To devolve is to go backward, to become inferior. Darwin believed in biological evolution or biological superiority through breeding. That's what his theory holds. But if you accept that as science, then you have to accept the idea, which I don't, but this is what the theory poses, that every person is at a different stage of evolution because we can't all evolve together since random selection requires that we're the, we are the product, the issue of parents who mated, and um, because they were superior, they met somehow a superior mate, and they gave off superior offspring, whereas other people didn't. So, therefore, the superior offspring are on their way to an evolved species, a new species, a superior kind of man, whereas the inferior offspring are devolving to the point of extinction or annihilation, as it were. Because, after all, the, in, the superior members of the species, would they not have a moral obligation to segregate and uh, quarantine and even annihilate the inferior members of their species in order to further advance the race, the species, to the point where you have what the National Socialists called the Ubermensch. And I would argue that, yes, you would, if you accept that theory, which I don't. So what I see in in terms of the theory of, of, um, of, of the book of creation is that the biblical concept of all men are created equal or that we are created in the image of God, that that's true, that there is no superior man, more evolved man. We're not undergoing a process as individuals or even as groups of becoming superior. Biologically, we could become superior in terms of our knowledge of how the universe works through science, through trial and error. We could become involved absolutely in understanding what are the better moral functions of a society. But we're not going to be biologically evolved. We are the same biologically today that the earliest man was. We are the same as Abraham. We're the same as Moses. We're the same as Jesus. We're the same as George Washington. There has been no evolution in terms of who man is physically. Now, we are stronger. 
we're fatter, we're taller, we're healthier, but it's not because we're biologically evolved. It's because we have invented, because of our intellectual capacity, our our intellect, our minds, the fact that we are alive and that we are able to reason, we have been able to invent situations in which we can thrive more on Earth. We no longer have to go hunting for our food. We have refrigerators. We have supermarkets. We have a means of ex- an abstract means of exchange, money, so that we no longer have to barter. We have a system of property ownership, so we know so we know where we are in terms of physical place and where we're entitled to be. We we can sign a mortgage or or sign a uh, a rental deed. You know we uh, we have means of government which actually promote uh, institutions of freedom so that we can control our own destinies. We can control our own lives. These are these are evolving ideas and they're ideas that we've arrived at through experience and I would argue from an understanding of the Torah. All of these things are in the Torah. And you know, we just need to be open to it and we need to be open to the spiritual side of existence and we will evolve spiritually. As individuals, we can make the world a better place. As individuals, by doing good deeds, by being hospitable to others, by contributing to human knowledge. But we're not going to be superior biologically because there is no such thing as biological evolution. This is one of the great hoaxes of all time. And the reason why it's so adhered to by elements of our secular establishment, by our elites, is because they want to evolve man by controlling the world. They do not want to have individuals, sovereign individuals, controlling their own destinies. And that they believe, and when I say they, I mean people like the Nazi socialists or the Soviet socialists or other left-wing movements throughout history. They believe that they are charged with physically improving the planet by changing human nature and thus evolving human beings. They believe it, and so didn't Charles Darwin, and they are wrong. Nobody's going to evolve me. My belief is that the Torah gives us a means to understand what God wants us to do morally and ethically. It gives us a system upon which how we are to interact with each other, how we are to live our lives, how nations are to interact with each other. But once that is established, and once it's established by immutable means, not by means that can be manipulated by people, but once it has been established, because the Lord God handed it to Moses at Sinai and it can't be changed, at least not by human beings, it's forever, then we can be free to evolve ourselves. And that, to me, is what the Breshit is all about. That is why God created the universe. That is why we are all descended from the same parents, We are all equal. We are all created in the image of God. We are not animals 
that are in states of flux, that are in states of evolution that could be manipulated by man-made entities who want to try to change human nature. My nature is not going to change. I will decide how I change or how I don't change. I want to be in charge of my own life and my own destiny to the degree that I can. Not the state, not somebody who has some demented idea of evolution. Anyway, so that's pretty much what my presentation is going to be about a week from Saturday at my synagogue. I don't know how people are going to take it. I mean, again, this is a real rough draft, and I figured I'd, I'd talk it through today right here on my radio show. Where else, right? <laughs> it's the only place I can have the chance to think straight. Um, as a way to get to uh, to what I want to say once I have to look people eyeball to eyeball, like Mitt Romney did the other night with Barack Obama. Anyway, you're welcome to join the conversation. 347-327-9849. 347-327-9849. Or you can email me at Morse number four, at gmail.com. You can take a brief break. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. Please stay tuned. is the number if you'd like to join the program 347-327-9849 it's all over it is all over Barack Obama is finished he has no there is no logical reason none for anyone other than, of course, real dedicated hardcore left-wing cadres or government employees who have their hack jobs, there is no reason for anyone to vote for Barack Hussein Obama for a second term. His first first term was a failure. I'm not saying everything was bad. There were some good moments. I agree with Barack Obama, for example, that General Motors should have been bailed out. I think he was right about that. If I were president of the United States, I would have bailed out General Motors. We can't let them go bankrupt. But for the most part, he has been a failed president. He has presided over an increase in poverty in this country, particularly among African Americans and minorities, which by today's conventional standards would make him a racist. But he's not because he happens to be black and liberal. He has presided over an increase in the number of people who require public assistance. I don't blame them. I blame him, and I blame his government and his bad policies. 
As a result, we have more people today on food stamps than at any time in history, and there's still not enough. We have higher unemployment levels than at any time since before the end of since uh, before World War II. We have economic stagnation in this country. Businesses are not investing in growth. They're not expanding because they don't think that they don't have confidence in the future. Barack Obama has created a shambles around the world. We have Iran developing nuclear weapons at breakneck speed and threatening Israel and other countries. We have a debacle in Afghanistan, something that Barack Obama expanded. I know we inherited it from Bush, but rather than de-escalate, he expanded it, and now it's a mess. We have a rise in anti-American terrorism around the world, as exemplified by the murder of our ambassador in Benghazi, Christopher Stevens, and three other men, two of whom were Navy SEALs. And, of course, the incompetence around that with regard to Obama is something that should be noted, and the cover-up, because they did not want to look like America had been attacked on 9-11 and that um, the terrorists had gotten away with it, because uh, that might not look good politically. So there was a cover-up around that. We have people protesting and rallying against America in Arab and Islamic capitals around the world. There's a civil war in Syria, which could escalate into a major war now that Turkey has sustained some attacks and they're attacking back. We have less likelihood of peace in Israel, with Israel's enemies further armed on its borders and and feeling confident. Europe, other than Germany and a few other countries, is, is moving toward economic chaos. There's no confidence. Uh, they've engaged in the same policies over a longer period of time than uh, that Barack Obama has engaged in, which is more spending. Barack Obama has increased the debt and the deficit by $4 trillion. People may not understand what that means, but it could have a devastating effect on our future and probably will if it continues. And it will continue under Obama. If Obama is reelected, God forbid, if anybody is insane enough to vote for him, other than, again, the cadre of leftists, then we're going to have the biggest tax increases in the history of the United States. And they're going to start pretty much right away, probably in January, even before, if he's reelected. Why not? He won't have to worry about it anymore. We doesn't care. He doesn't care raising taxes. He doesn't care if the economy collapses. Why not? He's, he's in office. He's been reelected. It's over. If the American people are stupid enough to vote for Barack Obama, then they're going to get exactly what they deserve. Thank God Mitt Romney stood up and, and took him on. You know, what what that showed me, the debate, if I could just reflect on one aspect of it was that Barack Obama with due respect to him and he's not a bad guy it's just you know this is who he is 
He has been coddled all his life. He has never faced serious opposition. He has never gone to a war situation. I don't even I don't mean that necessarily in a military sense, but in terms of battling out opponents. He's been protected, he's been coddled, he's been surrounded by syncopants and yes men and yes women who kiss his feet and who who basically pander, you know, who uh you know, pamper him and pander him and praise him. And he has been supported since he got into public life and even before by a media that adores him because they know he's one of them, a leftist. And as such, they have praised him. How wonderful he is. What his career means to the world so significant. Why? Frankly, because he's black, that's why. And also because he's on the left. Two big pluses. Therefore, he is this revolutionary figure that's going to change the planet. Just like Darwin talked about, biologically, I suppose. And the stuff that he's involved in that's not so good is covered up. Including the personal things a lot of which is now being written about, by the way, in World Net Daily, and I'm not going to get into it. But all of that is the kind of stuff that would have absolutely been covered with magnifying glasses for anyone else. But because Barack Obama is a darling of the left, he has been able to uh, to be insulated from such things. And he knows it. And he believes his own press. He has come to believe that he is this great figure. You know, when he debated John McCain in 2008, McCain was a pushover. That was nothing. McCain didn't touch him, didn't lay a glove on him. But now here he comes, late in the day, going toe-to-toe with Mitt Romney. And Mitt Romney's experience, of course, has been the exact opposite of Barack Obama's. Mitt Romney, in his public life, has received nothing but attacks, nothing but brickbats, nothing but opposition. You've never seen Mitt Romney get any kind of praise or very, very condescending praise when he does. Mitt Romney's life in the private sector as the CEO of Bain Capital, he dealt with controversies. He dealt with risk. He worked long hours. When he started out, he was working seven days a week to get the thing off the ground, and did so for years until he became more successful. In public life, as governor of Massachusetts, as a candidate for the U.S. Senate against Ted Kennedy, as candidate for president in 2008, all he did was get attacked. You know, when Barack Obama was running in 2008, at this point in the campaign, He had already been on the cover of major magazines like Time and Newsweek, I think almost 50 times, flattering pictures, very left-wing pictures. You know how the left likes to show somebody their face very closely cropped? The entire cover of the magazine is nothing but their face, you know, almost, almost as if he's Jesus. How many times has Mitt Romney been on the cover of these magazines? I'll tell you how many times. None. 
And when he is on the cover, they show him looking really ugly, or they picking his nose, or they show half of his face. And then they have a little caption saying, Greedy Mitt Romney, why he wants to screw you, or something like that, you know? So Mitt Romney arrives at the debate. He's ready to go. He's seasoned. He's been there. He's had the attacks. He's been through the debates. He's had a life experience in the real world. He resonates with real people because of it, which Obama has no idea about. And he acts accordingly, and he acts politely, too, by the way. He looked like he was enjoying the, the finally getting the opportunity to cut through all the media BS and all the Obama propaganda and all the lies that have been said about his record and to say, excuse me, Mr. President, he's so polite. But those statements are inaccurate. You know, it wasn't, I mean, maybe he learned a lesson from looking at debates with Bob Dole back in the 1990s. You know, Dole would get up there, you're lying about my record. You know, you're lying about, you know, and he looked so angry and his face was so twisted that it turned people off. So Mitt Romney has used a much more gentle approach, a much more respectful approach. He's respected the office of the presidency by referring to, excuse me, Mr. President, with all due respect. And then he says, you've been inaccurate. My favorite comment in the entire debate was when he said, um, with, Mr. President, forgive me, but I have no idea what you're talking about. Romney was, I mean, Obama was, was off in his usual ramble which he gets away with because the media loves him and they ignore it. He, he told about three or four stories about his grandmother, you know, completely out of context type stories. They start talking about Abraham Lincoln and how he laid railroad tracks. I mean, what does that have to do with anything? <clears throat> I think that Obama's problem also during the debate was that he had no teleprompter, at least none we could see. Maybe somebody was put a, put a little, you know, microphone in his in his headgear. I don't know. Who knows? But it didn't seem like he did. And so he was rambling. I mean, Mitt Romney. I mean, Barack Obama apparently takes a teleprompter everywhere. It's almost part of his body. It's like a, it's like a third appendage. <laughs> I mean, he even had a teleprompter when he addressed a, a classroom of of twelve year olds. Apparently, can you imagine? So now that Mitt Romney has stepped out and has shown the country that he's a normal person who's going to get in and solve problems pragmatically, that he's not this right-wing guy, he's not particularly a, a, an ideologue, but that he's just a simple, patriotic, able, capable man who could very easily be president and do a very good job, cut of the same cloth, as many of our great presidents. And that that has been contrasted with a spoiled, out-of-touch Obama. And by the way, I think John Sununu was absolutely right. He's detached and lazy. I think he's right about that. It's a mean thing to say. I don't like that kind of talk. I wish he didn't say it. But that's what this election's about. You have to fight fire with fire. You know, they're attacking uh, Mitt Romney. He's a felon. One of one of uh, you know one of Romney's chief apparatchiks, 
said, oh, he's a felon. He's committed a felony, she says. And he's, uh, you know, a tax cheat, you know, this kind of stuff. And a liar. Lies, lies, lies. You know, that came right out of Netroots Nation, that agenda. And uh, so, yes, you have to fight fire with fire and tell the truth. Obama does appear to be lazy and out of touch. I mean, I think he's had more golf games than any president in history combined. And apparently him and his, him and Michelle and the two daughters, their lifestyle has cost the taxpayers almost a billion dollars. They're living very high, very luxuriously. If this was anybody but Obama, there would have been screams. Can you imagine if George Bush did this? I mean, George Bush took time off, but his idea of a vacation was to go to his very modest ranch in Texas, his ecologically correct ranch, a very regular house. You know, I mean, not this, these, these, these extravagant trips to Spain where, where Michelle Obama looks like she's is like Cleopatra, you know, with, with, with slaves, you know, fanning with, with, with uh, peacock, you know, fans over her. <clears throat> I mean, that, that, that just wouldn't go for Republicans. And Republicans generally wouldn't do that. I remember Nancy Reagan was criticized for changing the, the, the China in the White House for dignitaries. It wasn't even something that she did for herself. She, they were entertaining foreign dignitaries, and she felt that the China needed to be upgraded. It was a, you know, she, it wasn't because, I mean, they didn't personally keep the China. They, it was more just, a, you know, I mean, I think that she viewed it as a, an issue of of how America presents itself to the world. You know, what kind of an experience do our foreign dignitaries have when they come and visit the president of the United States and there's a state dinner? She was vilified for that. Remember? I mean, I'm older than a lot of our listeners. But Michelle Obama, for God's sake, she goes to Madrid, and she brings 200 friends with her, all on the taxpayer dime, rents out three floors of the most expensive hotel in the city, probably charges up to $2 million for this, and not a peep. So, anyway, what are the polls telling us? This is on the Drudge Report today. Let's see. Post-debate bounce in the polls. Romney pulls ahead in Virginia. Hallelujah. Takes a three-point lead in Florida. That is huge. Florida is one of the biggest states in the country now in terms of population. I think it's number four. It's, it's, uh, it's New York, California. might even be California, New York. But new, let's just say New York, California, Texas, and then Florida. It says here that, uh, let's see, who did this poll? This is Rasmussen, okay, who, again, is a pretty good pollster. Election 2012, Florida. Mitt Romney now has swung back into the lead in the first post-debate survey of the presidential race in Florida. The latest Rasmussen reports, statewide telephone survey of Florida likely voters shows Romney with 49% of the vote to Obama's 47. Three percentage points are undecided at this point. So, Florida, Romney 49, Obama 47. I'm I'm mortified that Obama would even have that much, but boy, this is a, a substantial change, a substantial growth. 
Ohio. Listen to this. This is from, let's see, this is from the Washington Examiner. Ohio poll. Romney leads 51 to 48 in Ohio. This is important. Ohio is the state to watch. Whoever wins Ohio wins the election. The left has been telling us that for weeks as they've come out with this phony poll saying that Romney was eight points ahead. I doubt if he ever was. I think he was a little ahead. Now it says Ohio poll. Romney leads 51 to 48 percent amongst those certain to vote. It says here, the first post-presidential debate poll in critical Ohio shows that Mitt Romney blunted President Obama's momentum with his winning performance and is now leading the president among Ohioans who say that they are certain to vote. Overall, the race is deadlocked with Obama over Romney 50 to 49. In other words, it's a tie nationally. But among the stunning 92% of likely voters in the state who say they are certain to go to the polls on Election Day, Romney leads 51 to 48%. And among the 83% who have already made up their minds how they will vote, Romney is ahead of Obama 52 to 48%. The president, however, has a two-to-one lead among the 17% who could still change their minds between now and Election Day. Okay, so there's still the undecideds, and Romney, Obama is still ahead with them, but we'll see. This is only one day after that, after that uh, debate, and I think that next week we have a debate between the vice presidential candidates, Usually those debates don't get the same kind of attention, but this time around I think it might because it's so close, and I think that Paul Ryan is going to do fine. So there you have it. Romney's pulled ahead of Obama in Ohio. This is a shocker. I'm telling you, it could happen. This country could bite the bullet, and we may put in office an interesting and important leader and do well. I'm not saying, you know, look, if Obama wins, it's not going to be a disaster. We'll get through it. But why not do better? Why can't we have excellence? Why do we have to just muddle through another four more miserable years of lack of leadership and instability abroad and weakness in the economy at home and appointed bureaucrats and a turnover of American sovereignty. Why have that? Why not do something better? Why not get back to a more successful way to be? Why not say something to the rest of the world? Why not do something domestically for ourselves? Why not take a look at our own pockets and ask ourselves if we're sick and tired of spending so much money on products? Yeah. Why not ask ourselves whether we want to have a future where maybe we could get a better job? Why not lift our country out of poverty and vote for Mitt Romney? Anyway, that pretty much wraps up things for today. I will be off Monday because it's a holiday. I will be off Tuesday because it's a Jewish holiday. So I shall return, God willing, next Wednesday right here at Cyber Station USA Radio Network. Stay tuned for Patrick O'Heffernan here at Cyber Station. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speak. Check out my blog site, which is Chuck Moore Speaks, or A Whig Manifesto, and uh, check out my latest blogs. 
And uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good weekend, everybody.